שנה טובה. Thirteen years ago, a lovely couple saved my life, and I never thanked them. It was 2006, and I was co-captain of the Tufts University swim team. Earlier that day, I had traveled to Western Massachusetts for our division championship at Williams College. Though I had qualified for the meet the previous year, an injury at the 11th hour had sidelined me late in my final season, and I had failed to make the cut. That didn't mean, however, that I didn't want to be there cheering on my teammates. So like we did every year, those of us who were not competing rented a house nearby so we could rush to the poolside each morning of the three-day competition in solidarity with those who were swimming. This particular year, the house that we had rented was over the border in Vermont, at least a 45-minute drive from Williams. One evening, about a day into the competition, I heard that a blizzard was likely, but I was determined to stay and to watch the whole meet. I knew that my two-door, 10-year-old Acura likely couldn't handle well in the snow, but after calling around to a few hotels in the area and learning that they were all booked up, I knew that if I was going to be sleeping somewhere, it would have to be on the other side of that mountain in the crowded ski lodge with my team. Three of my friends piled into my car and we started the long, slow journey up the hillside. It took about halfway up the mountain to realize that we were really in trouble. My car kept skidding. I decided to drive with my hazard lights on, both to make sure that I was better seen by those around me and because in my mind, it somehow gave me permission to drive five miles an hour with a chain of cars behind me. <laughs> Eventually, it got too much, and I pulled over to the side of the road to ask my passengers what we should do. By this time, I was convinced we were in danger. We couldn't make it up the mountain, and it would be dangerous to go back down. Even if we made it back to Williams, where would we go? We didn't have enough gas to run the car all night to keep it warm enough for the four of us to sleep in. Deep in conversation, I didn't notice a car had pulled behind me and had started vigorously flashing his brights. Getting out of his car, I decided to do the same. You okay, he asked. I told him we were headed over the mountain and that I was worried that we weren't going to make it. I'll tell you what, he said. Follow me. I live at the next street on the right. Come have a break at my house and then you can be on your way. Maybe because we were smart or maybe because we were stupid, we trusted him. <laughs> we followed him around the bend into a development at the end of an unplowed road. When we got to his house, his wife greeted us, made us tea and demanded that we stay the night. She showed us pictures of her kids, both of which were also in college. In hindsight, I realized this was her effort to explain to us the urgency of her request. It was as if she were saying, I'm a parent, so do yours a favor and listen to me. <laughs> and we did. I called my teammates who had rightly left earlier that day for the lodge, and I told them that I wouldn't be coming. And then my friends and I found couches and floor space in her den, and we went to sleep. A little afraid, I was now a character in Eli Roth's next horror film in the Hostel franchise. <laughs> 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 
but mostly relieved that I was out of the driver's seat. As the sun rose and I looked out at the foot of snow on the ground, I realized I had somehow dodged a bullet. My car could not have made it further up without skidding off the road. I came to realize that morning that this house marked the boundary point between where civilization seemed to end and the truly rural areas of our trip would begin. If I had continued and there was a problem, I likely would not have had cell phone service. Even at that time, I knew that this couple likely had saved mine and my friends' lives. That morning over breakfast, we thanked them. And then we took down their information on a sheet of paper and we headed out for our final day of cheering. Walking toward the car, they impressed upon me that we should not be strangers. Driving back to Williamstown, the four of us brainstormed ways to thank them. Would flowers be enough? Maybe a donation in their name. No matter what, a thoughtful note was in order. What kindness, what risk these strangers took in helping us. But that afternoon, I lost the slip of paper with their information. I'm not sure I realized it until I got back to Somerville and I searched frantically through my bags, my car, and my pockets. But it was gone. And so was any chance to adequately thank them for saving our lives. From time to time, I think of them. I can't describe them. I can picture their den, but not their house. I have no idea which route I took up that mountain to even find the town in which they lived. But their openness their day, their willingness to trust us and to help us in our time of need, that has stayed with me. In fact, it shaped me. Yet I have no way to thank them for it. I imagine everyone here has been in a situation like mine. As we live our lives, people will float in and out of them. Some will be permanent fixtures, others will make guest appearances. And in those short interactions, some will do things that will change us for better or worse. As we live, we accumulate a series of unfinished tasks, loose threads left undone by time and circumstance that we have no means to sew. For me, it was a sort of unrealized gratitude. I owe this couple my thanks, but I have no way to deliver it. It's here with me, but I have nothing that I can do with it. Rosh Hashanah is a time to reach out to those in our past and bring closure to unfinished sentiments. It's not just the season to call someone to apologize, though that's very important, but also to praise them and to thank them. This is a season to let out the words and the thoughts that are better seen by others. If this season is about completing the unfinished projects of life, I want to know how we can find closure with those that we might never see again. How can we thank someone who isn't there? Though my story is unique, I imagine many here are thinking of people they wish they could thank. Perhaps it's an old teacher you lost touch with, a mentor who died long ago. Maybe someone saved your life but then faded into the crowd, or a doctor put you on a path to healing but you don't remember his or her name. For me, as I imagine it might be for you, 
There's a guilt in the midst of unfinished business that festers. Soon the gratitude that you owe starts feeling less like a gift that you want to give and more like a burden that you are going to carry. Normally it feels meritorious to give thanks, but the longer you hold on to it without sharing it, the more you feel like with that thanks should also come an apology for the sin of ungratefulness, for the sin of thoughtlessness, for taking one's kindness for granted. Our tradition has much to say about the act of giving thanks, called in Hebrew, hakaratz hatov. Not only are the majority of our prayers about thanking God for the opportunities that we have, things like in the morning thanking God for our bodies working well, the ability to stand firm, even our breath, but there are countless times in our tradition where we observe others doing acts of thanksgiving. Tomorrow, for example, we're going to read about a feast that Abraham puts on after the birth of his son, Isaac. Giving thanks is particularly important because it shapes our character. Gratitude and humility are inextricably linked. Only if we're able to move our own wants and desires out of the way can we make room to see those things for which we should give thanks. And for this reason, we're taught in our Talmud, quote, what does a good guest say? How much trouble my host goes through for me? How much meat he has offered? How much wine he's set before me? How many cakes he's brought before me? And all of this trouble he went through for me. But an inconsiderate guest, what does he say? What trouble does my host go through? I've eaten one piece of bread, a single piece of meat. I've had but one cup of wine. All the trouble the host has gone has been only for his family. But while gratitude is a spiritual practice, shaping us and helping us grow more open and appreciative, it often feels incomplete unless we can share it. Thinking about the kindness of a host is important, but telling them what dinner meant to you, that means your gratitude can impact another. So imperfect as it may be, we have to find avenues to let our gratitude out, even if we can't ever share it directly with the person for whom we are grateful. Rabbi Alan Moranis tells a the story of a famous violinist who stood before an audience ready to play. No sooner had he begun than he popped a string. Now he was famous enough that he could have stopped the symphony and took a break and replaced that string. But instead he decided to play with the three remaining. In some cases, he was able to find the notes that he needed on other strings. In other cases, he recomposed parts of the piece in his head to fit with the strings that he had. When he finished, the audience was in awe. They had witnessed true genius. They began applauding wildly, but quickly the violinist signaled for them to stop. You know, he said, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much beautiful music you can still make with what you have left. In the remaining time I have, I want to reflect on what beautiful music we can still make with our unrealized gratitude. As religious individuals, the first place that we can put our thanks is toward the cosmos. In the absence of a person to give thanks, we can offer that thanks to God. I've always been struck by teaching about our patriarch Abraham, who famously used to take wayfarers in. He would feed them, give them something to drink, and he would allow them to rest. But when they finished, he would ask them if they wanted to pray 
thanking God for the food he just gave them. If a person prayed, he'd let them go. But if they turned and thanked him for the hospitality, but declined his offer to pray, he would charge them for the food and the supplies that he gave them. Quickly, people would realize that they needed to join him in prayer. (laughs) Abraham is an extreme case, but his story teaches us an important lesson about where to place our thanks. Abraham understood that much of life is luck, and he was a product of a bounty that wasn't his own doing. That's why he wanted to pass gratitude forward. We live in a world of blessing. A person's kindness, their openness, their warmth is their own. But it's also an echo of the sparks of kindness, openness, and warmth within all of us, woven into our DNA by God. The couple who took me in that night certainly deserves praise. But in the absence of finding them, I can thank the source of all goodness, the creator of all kindness, the progenitor of all love. God provides me a place to put my unrealized gratitude. But God isn't the only answer. Often we can put our thanks to good use in this world. I recently heard a story about Rabbi Yisrael Zeb Gussman, the head of Yeshivat Netzach Yisrael, who despite his stature and renown, would water the bushes in front of his school every single day. In one instance, when asked why, he told the story of fleeing Vilna during the Holocaust. In one instance, he was almost caught, but for a large growth of bushes that he hid behind. For this reason, seeing bushes reminded him of this past, and as a way to honor these bushes that saved his life, he would water the ones in his midst. Rabbi Gussman's approach teaches us that our unrealized gratitude does have a home. We may not have an avenue to return to the source of our thanks, but we can take the spirit of our appreciation and we can spread it forward. That night, that couple taught me to be more hospitable, more open, and more kind. I find myself from time to time channeling them in my own day-to-day interactions. I may not be able to thank them directly for being good Samaritans in a way. I can show them gratitude every time that I direct a lost tourist or check on someone on the side of the road. I thank them every time I interact with our TNT teens and with every guest who I invite to stay in my house. But even with these steps, I understand that a piece of me still needs to keep searching. For those of us who have the luxury of losing touch with someone, rather than losing them all together. The best way to deal with unrealized gratitude is to try to find them. Many may know the famous story of Rahab who appears in the biblical book of Joshua. She too took in wayfarers. Living in Jericho, she lodged two of Joshua's spies who were preparing to besiege the city. Soon the residents of the city caught on that they were there and they sought to kill the spies. But Rahab helped them escape thus saving their lives. Here the story ends, and Rahab disappears from our narrative. What many may not know is that our ancient rabbis, many years later, imagine that the story continues in a midrash. After the city is besieged, those spies go back, and they look for Rahab, and they find her. In a fairy tale turn, Rahab ends up joining the Israelites, 
converting to Judaism and eventually marrying their leader, Joshua. I bring up this story not because I assume any of this is going to happen to you, but because it shows that there is tremendous power in conveying our gratitude. Old connections can form new connections and renewed friendships, and in Rahab's case, even love. But even if we never find that person, the simple act of searching can be powerful. To find someone, you have to tell your story over and over and over again. You have to ask for help using the resources at your disposal. And when we do this, we bring the story of another's kindness and love into the light, and it instructs every single person who hears it about how to act in the world. And it's for these reasons that I need your help. I'm going to post this story after Rosh Hashanah in the hopes that I can find this couple. And I hope you can help me. When I do, if you see it, please share it. And even if I can't find them, the simple act of looking for them will at least bring me closer to conveying to them adequate gratitude. And each of you can do the same. Seek out that person that you need to find, and even if you never connect, use the process of searching as a way to grow and teach. I don't know if I'm ever going to find that couple again. And that's okay. Our tradition understands an unfinished duty, duty, a job half done, is still better than ignoring the task at all. As Rabbi Tarfon taught us nearly, nearly 2,000 years ago, it is not your job to finish the task, nor are you free to desist from it. If you can't thank someone specifically, show thanks in different ways. Each of us has the agency and the power to not give up. In this season, which aims to bind up the should-haves and what-ifs of our past, don't despair just because you don't have all the tools at your disposal. You may owe things to others that they will never receive, and that is okay. Half of the journey is figuring out what to do with them. Shana Tova. might not find the people tonight, but we can definitely start with tapping into some praise and sharing it with the source. And we're going to give you more than one vehicle in. Samachti Vilmrin Lee, I was very glad when I realized I could unlock the praise within me and share it and let it keep finding its way forward.
house of